Chapter 4 of The General Principle of Relativity in Its Philosophical and Historical Aspect. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersant. The General Principle of Relativity in Its Philosophical and Historical Aspect by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 4 Atoms and the Void. We have seen that in the speculations of the early Greeks in nature philosophy, two opposite and contradictory principles emerged and divided the schools into rival camps. One took becoming, the other being, as the first principle of existence. The conflict of these two principles issued in the ancient world in the synthetic construction of a system which has ever since held sway over the human mind. This is the atomic theory of Democritus, of Abdera, in Thrace, an older contemporary of Socrates, and the first formulator of philosophical materialism. Insofar as the atomic theory is a science of nature, there is at every point despite the enormous advance of physical science in modern times, and the development of means of extending our knowledge by experiment, a most striking consistency between the old atomic theory and the new. The theory of Democritus is the first attempt of Western thought to present nature as a complete, self-contained system. It is a pure materialism, for it deduces the whole of the phenomena of the universe, psychical as well as physical, mental as well as bodily, internal and spiritual, as well as external and objective, from the concept of an eternal and indestructible matter. There would seem to be a bias towards materialism in the nature of human intelligence for nothing is able to exorcise completely the hold which it maintains over ordinary experience. Its principle seems eminently rational, and it demands, it would seem, continual and sustained effort to maintain against it what we may have come to regard as stronger reason. Yet, Although materialism has always appealed to the human intellect as rational, and indeed as enforced in some measure by every practical concern of life, it has never held sway for long. Humanity has revolted against it, sometimes with contempt, generally with loathing, too often with passionate hatred. The reason is not that it is irrational, but that it has always seemed to destroy morality at its roots, and to sap the foundations of religion. Yet, to reject materialism on moral and religious grounds, so far from serving philosophy, is disastrous to it. If materialism is condemned, it ought to be on philosophical grounds alone and, if it be philosophically untenable, everything is unfortunate which tends to conceal its weakness. For my own part, I frankly confess, materialism seems consistent with the highest ethical principles, 
and with the purest religion. I reject it solely on philosophical grounds. Its essential principle not only fails to satisfy me, but stands opposed to what appears to me the most obvious truth. Mind is more than matter. In every respect and from every standpoint, mind is richer, fuller, greater, more comprehensive. Any principle which proposes to deduce that more from the less stands self-condemned. Yet this is the essential principle of materialism. Given something absolutely self-identical and deprived of difference, materialism declares that by mere external combination and relation there will be produced the variety of the universe including the spiritual values. According to the ancient theory, indivisible atoms, identical in everything but quantity and shape, by their combinations and movements, were held to be able to produce, and in fact had produced, the infinite complexity of the universe. According to the modern theory, simple elements, reducible ultimately to single electrical charges, by mere external combinations in atoms and molecules, are thought to be able to give rise to every form of reality, natural and spiritual. Our knowledge of Democritus is derived only from references to him in the classical writings, but a very complete account of his atomic theory is enshrined in the great poem De Rerum Natura of the Roman philosopher-poet Lucretius. In that poem, Lucretius has presented to us the philosophy of Epicurus, a philosopher regarded by his followers as divinely inspired and revered as the founder of a religion, or at least of a philosophy practiced as a religious duty. Lucretius lived in the first half of the century before Christ, and therefore belongs to the last period of the Roman Republic. Epicurus taught in Athens at the end of the 4th and beginning of the 3rd century B.C. Democritus was a century earlier still. The philosophy of Epicurus was an ethical theory. He accepted and adopted the atomic theory of Democritus as the scientific basis of his ethics. Lucretius is a true poet, and the science of nature, which he has expounded in his poem, is not directly intended for instruction, but to support a moral and religious argument. He is moved by a deep love of nature, and profound pity for human misery, and by a firm belief in the power of philosophy to dispel the principal evils in man's lot. The greatest misery which humanity endures is not a physical evil, but mental torture due to superstitious fear. Could a man be convinced that the gods have no interest in human affairs and cannot intervene in the concerns of his earthly life? Could he moreover be assured that death is a release and not the beginning of imagined terrors, the two great hindrances to human happiness would be removed.
the pleasure which every living creature craves for as part of its nature could at least be enjoyed unspoiled by the poison of superstition. For this purpose he unfolds the philosophy of his almost divine master and the poem from the invocation to Venus, not only as goddess of love, but as the goddess who has some influence over the cruel god of war, to the close with its terrible description of the plague in Athens, is inspired by a melancholy and deep yearning to alleviate the miserable lot of mankind by an effective deliverance from superstitious fears. The thought that runs through the poem may be gathered from a few examples. Quote, when we shall have seen that nothing can be produced from nothing, we shall then be able to ascertain correctly what the elements are out of which everything can be produced, and the manner in which all things are done without the hand of the gods. If things come from nothing, any kind of thing might be born of anything. No seed would be required. Men might rise out of the sea, fish out of the earth, birds out of the sky. Fruits would not be constant to the trees which produce them. Any tree might bear any fruit. But instead, we see that the rose blooms in spring, the corn ripens in summer, the vintage comes in autumn. If things came from nothing, there would be no certain seasons and no time required for growth. Infants would grow at once to men, and trees spring in a moment from the ground. But none of these events happen. All things grow step by step, and in growing preserve their kind. Moreover, nature dissolves everything back into its primitive elements, and does not annihilate things. If infinite time has not destroyed things, it can only be that things are indestructible." Unquote. These passages are from the beginning of the first book, and introduce the theory of the atoms. Another passage may be quoted to show the arguments for the void. Quote, the waters, some say, make way for the fish, which swim in them. They open liquid paths to them, because the fish leave room behind them, into which the yielding waters may stream. Thus, things may move and change among themselves, although the whole seem to be full. But I ask, how can the fish move forwards unless the waters have first made room? And on what side can the displaced water go so long as the fish has not moved? You must therefore deny motion or admit that the void is mixed up with the things in order that motion may get a start. Unquote. The science which Lucretius offers us rests on the theory that all things are composed of atoms, that atoms can move by reason of the surrounding void, and that all phenomena are produced by the movements of the atoms. 
It is not exact science as the moderns conceive science. For the ancient philosophers, however acute their observations and precise their descriptions, and ingenious their hypotheses, had neither devised nor developed the experimental method which is the distinguishing feature of modern scientific research. The ancient atomic theory arose directly from the paradoxes of the rival principles of the old nature philosophy. It was the great and profound synthetic work of a man of genius. It was worked out into a complete system, and as a perfect expression of materialism, it has exerted a continuous influence throughout the whole history and development of Western thought. We can see how the system of Democritus arose. If all things flow, some simple, unchangeable being must support the movement. If this being moves, non-being cannot be not. Movement is impossible if everything is divisible. Therefore, if there is movement, there is a limit to divisibility. Movement is unreal if the indivisible atoms fill all space, for then movement is blocked. Therefore, besides the atoms, there is void. Movement is contradictory if the moving body is at every moment at rest. Therefore, there is some force which causes the atoms to move. There must be persistence of matter throughout the infinite variety of changing form. The atoms are the identity unchanged beneath the varying wealth of sensory appearance. The principle of materialism is that the simplest explanation is the best, and the atomic theory deduces all the wealth of existence from absolutely simple beginnings. It is helped by an analogy. Just as the infinite variety of literature is produced by means of the letters of the alphabet, which undergo no change throughout all their combinations, so we may suppose that the phenomena of the universe, with their infinite variety of color and form, can be reduced in the last analysis to very simple elements, almost identical, yet able to produce variety in profusion simply by combinations. These simple elements are the atoms. By uniting and combining, they form material objects. By changing their place, they bring about the continual shifting of phenomenal change. What can we know positively about atoms? We cannot see them nor by any conceivable means make them evident to the senses. Not only has no one seen an atom, but we can be certain that no one ever will. For anything large enough to be an object of sense perception would not be indivisible. The concept of indivisibility places them far below the limit of perception and the fact of indivisibility assures us of their reality. 
Collected into a group of sufficient members, they form a body which can be seen and touched. The fact of their existence is thus derived from the necessity of denying the infinite divisibility of being. The quantity of the atoms is infinite, for there is no limit to the bodies which the universe contains. Also, they are eternal and indestructible. This also follows from the concept of them. They have no other quality than their form or shape. In this alone is their difference from one another. Color, odor, weight, resistance are due to their combinations and movements. The unchangeableness of the atom follows, therefore, from its nature. It has been and will be what it is throughout eternity. How can it change, seeing that it is indivisible? How can it alter its quality, seeing that it has none? Bodies which are composed of the atoms appear to us colored, resistant, sonorous, hot or cold, but this is illusion. For these qualities are the impressions on our sense organs and therefore appearance. Dissipate the illusion, think of bodies as they must be in themselves, and it will be seen that they must consist of atoms and that atoms cannot themselves possess the sense qualities. But, just as atoms have different forms, so the bodies composed of them will be different according to the arrangement and direction of the atoms in them. When, then, one identical body appears different at different moments, it is because its atoms have changed place or because some of its atoms have been lost or gained. It is analogous to the case of words, which alter and change in both sound and meaning by the addition or subtraction of a letter or the alteration of the arrangement of the letters. Such, then, are the atoms. How have they come to form the world in which we live? We must suppose that the atom left to itself in the void would have a natural movement, a movement inherent in it, a weight or gravity which would cause it to fall forever in the infinite void. From this it will come about that from time to time atoms will clash, will block one another, and form conglomerations or heaps. Our world must be conceived as such a heap, and by the clashing, sorting, collecting, and dispersing of its atoms, there have successfully formed themselves the earth floating in the air, the moon and the sun which are bodies like the earth, the stars and also the living beings on the earth. The soul, which appears to animate the organized bodies, must be supposed to consist of more subtle atoms, very mobile, which we may imagine to be round and polished, and so comparatively frictionless. The thoughts which succeed one another in the soul are the movements of its component atoms. 
Democritus seems to have explained the perception of material objects by a theory that those objects are at every moment emitting on all sides extremely small images of themselves which strike on the organs of sense. It is to this theory that Aristotle probably alludes when he says, Metaphysics 4, 5, quote, Democritus, at any rate, says that either there is no truth, or to us at least it is not evident. And in general, it is because these thinkers suppose knowledge to be sensation, and this to be a physical alteration, that they say what appears to our senses must be true." Unquote. Such, then, is the materialistic naturalism of the ancient philosophy. Bodies and souls, objects and worlds, are composed of atoms. The phenomena of nature and the acts of thought are movements of atoms. There is not, never has been, never can be, anything but atoms, void in time. These are the conditions of movement, and movement is the reality of the phenomenal world. There remained, however, one problem unsolved. It led to an important and somewhat inconsistent modification by Epicurus of the theory which he adopted. This was the problem of direction. Bodies fall. Their natural direction is downwards. If bodies seem to rise, it is either because their fall is relatively slower than that of heavier bodies, or, if the direction of their upward movement is absolute, it is due to a rebound from the clash of colliding bodies. Apparently, this difficulty was met by supposing that the void is infinite, that atoms are indestructible, that worlds are forever being formed and unformed, and that their number is infinite. In such a world view, absolute direction could be accepted as fact without introducing direct contradiction. But a new difficulty occurred to Epicurus. If atoms are falling perpendicularly by an inherent natural movement in the infinite void, they will pursue parallel courses from which there is nothing to turn them aside, and no heaps or conglomerations will be formed. He introduces, therefore, a new notion. From time to time, he supposes, the atoms show a slight inclination, imperceptible and capricious, which Lucretius named their clinamen. It draws them from time to time out of the perpendicular and brings them into collision, causing them to form masses. The interest of such a theory, however, is not its physical importance, for in that respect it is quite arbitrary, but that it is inspired by the need of the philosopher to find in nature some basis for the free action of the human soul. This, then, became the accepted form in which space, time, and movement entered into the ancient nature philosophy. As a philosophical concept, atoms and the void could not withstand criticism. On what principle could a limit 
to divisibility be fixed. To appeal to perception is impossible, for by the hypothesis the perceptible is divisible. Is the appeal to conception any more successful? Shape or form itself involves the notion of whole and part. It is not difficult indeed to show that the concept of the atom is riddled with contradiction, and moreover possesses no principle by which a synthesis of contradictions can be effected on the Hegelian method. It is a whole without parts. It is a quantity with no quality but its quantity. The void is even more difficult to conceive. It is a pure negation, posited as the very basis of reality. It is an absence which forms the absolute condition of presence. Finally, its occupancy supposes a matter which is ultimately indivisible, filling a portion of a space which is divisible to infinity. On the other hand, the atomic theory is not a baseless speculation. It is grounded in the reality of experience. Moreover, it is not a rough and ready practical solution of an insoluble theoretical problem. It is based on a sound intellectual principle, which we may even describe as an intellectual instinct. The principle that from nothing there is nothing, and the application of this principle to points and instants. Extension is not composed of extension-less points. Duration is not composed of duration-less instants. The very same intuition which makes the philosopher of mind affirm the moment of experience to be a specious present makes the natural philosopher affirm the atom to be the spatial unit. The ancient atomic theory has little but a merely outward resemblance to the modern atomic theory. The latter is not a philosophical theory, though of immense philosophical interest. It is a purely scientific theory, and not an effort of the mind to conceive the ultimate constitution of matter based on deductions from the logical principle of non-contradiction. It is scientific in the meaning that it is based on discovery, and the mathematical formulae by which it is expressed are submitted to the test of experiment, and corrected continually by the results of experiment. It is only in the sense that the atom of modern science is a conceptual object which can never be brought to a direct perceptual test, for the reason that its size is below the amplitude of the waves of light and therefore can never be made visible to our ordinary illumination, that it is permissible to indicate it by the same name. In contrast to the concept of the ancient philosophy, the atom of modern physical theory is not simple and undifferentiated, but infinitely complex. The discovery of the X-rays and their application to the analysis of crystal structure, with a consequent increase in the range of our direct perceptual penetration of matter, have indeed revealed 
in a positive manner the nature of molecular and atomic structure and have to that extent given a surer basis to physical science. Yet even this vast extension of perception which our modern world possesses, as compared with the ancient, does not relieve it from the necessity of conception for its idea of the ultimate nature of a physical reality. The value of the ancient theory is that it shows us the form in which space, time, and movement provided the scheme of a philosophy of nature. Space was the void, a concept of pure, infinite emptiness. Time was the other formal expanse which reality required, but it seems to have been taken for granted and not conceptually analyzed as space was. Movement seems ultimately to have been explained by the principle that something is more than nothing, and therefore that the something occupying space must, by the very fact that it is something, fall through the void which is nothing. It is clear that to the ancient mind there is one fundamental empirical fact which is accepted as ultimate, apparently unconsciously, and this is the fact which we now call gravitation, and which to them meant the weight which made everything sink in the void. End of chapter 4. Reading by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California.